the theme for this year is mercy. And the definition of mercy is a loving disposition to help those in need, to offer help as well as forgive. That's what mercy is. I did like a long book study and uh, like a long word study on mercy, and it's really a hard word to parse out. I, I would argue that it's like not even really a word. It's actually a word that has many meanings. It's not like one word of mercy. Sometimes it's translated graciousness, uh, compassion, forgiveness, love. And from that, when you see it reoccurring, the, the word mercy arose from the Old Testament, which was really interesting to me. Um, so it's, just, it's rich in meaning. It's the connective tissue, I believe, between love and justice. Mercy is that, to offer need and to offer forgiveness. But before we go anywhere else, we're a couple weeks past it, but I mentioned New Year's resolutions. And I really like New Year's resolutions, and I don't. I like them because it's always good to reflect and to commit. So resolutions, what are some resolutions that you had in 20, for 2022? That's a, just a little icebreaker for you all. What are some resolutions that you've come up with in 2022? So New Year's resolution. My, uh, I do have a resolution. Usually I don't give too much gravitas to them, but this year I felt that I need to, it's pretty prophetic this morning, I need to play more as I actually need to play. And uh, the reason why is I have a Messiah complex like a lot of us. I struggle with uh, pride and, and overworking as a result of my pride, whether it's doing ministry or doing the dishes. And I just, I felt that God's called me, I just need to play more. And I do play with my kids, but like play with Andy more. I need to like play around, like whether that's music, which actually this morning was really, I was like, yes. Even though I don't really play music that much, I was like, I just felt like that, the Lord was like, yeah, let's go play, have fun. So um, yeah, and it's, yeah, it's just interesting how days can go by. You know, and days, how the days, of what you do in a day kind of informs what you do over the years and in your life. Um, so I do like New Year's resolutions because it's always good to reflect and to make commitments. I don't like them because it's always good to reflect and make commitments. It's always good to be attentive to what God is up to. And there's another thing that can be uh, difficult about New Year's resolutions. There's this over-focus on me changing me. This, that, that's the problem with is I need to make my changes. I've got to do this when it's the Lord who's actually the one who makes changes. It's God changing us. And there's a mystery to that we're going to lean into today. But I think it's just worth noting that from the outset. It's like Proverbs 16, 9. Man, is that, man makes plans or humans, humans make plans and God establishes the person's steps. That's it, something along those lines. We make our plans, but God's the one who establishes our steps. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about almost a month ago where three really good-looking guys got baptized and how they, Ben, I'm looking at you, um, how we step into change. And I, I thought about, since we're looking at Jesus' baptism today, and I thought about what does it look like to really step into change? What does it look like to step into baptismal, God-ordained, God-sustained, God-initiated change? We, we need to remember our baptisms, because in, in the baptisms, and keep, keep scrolling through, Drew. This is uh, Ben's baptism. This is Donovan's baptism. It happened December 19th, as well as that's Chris Collado's. Is There's something about baptism that really illustrates well the work of the Holy Spirit. Wait a minute. Hey, there's Ashley right there. There's Ashley's baptism right there. Look at that. There's Eric James's baptism. Um, 
That's Andrew right there, right there getting baptized. There's uh, Matt and Daniel Adams. That was their baptism while going. It's just fun to see. It's, and then there's my baptism right there. Let's just hold on there, because one of the byproducts of baptism is just a really good-looking bicep. Look at that thing, dude. <laughs> that was once upon a crime. And, uh, yeah, that's me. Courtney was there. Uh, Greg is there, which is really fun. I was a member of the, I was a pastor. I wasn't a pastor yet, but I was a director in a church, and I had never been baptized. I was Catholic. I grew up, and I was confirmed. But I decided that I wanted to baptize others, so I took the honor and privilege of being baptized. And it's, it beautifully, again, illustrates our part and God's part. See, God's the one who initiates with us and changes us. And God's the one who, who brings us into new life. And as a result, we decide to walk out there to be baptized, to confess our need for God as Savior, but we've already confessed that. And we just, we're just verbally confess, confessing that to our church so that they can know and we can know that, hey, we all are in need. We're a needy people, and there's a God who meets our needs. And even the, the process of us walking out to the water, that's like even God walking us out there. Sometimes God is carrying people out in the water. Because it is, it is a big step to go out and be baptized in front of others. It's a wonderful thing. All right, we can get that picture off. Thanks. And there's, um, that's us dunking. I think that's us dunking Ben. Um, so, yeah, I, I think when we talk about, as we think of new relations, how do we step into real change? We need to remember our baptism and remember, in order to remember how, how change takes place. We need to remember our baptism in order to remember how change takes place. And uh, again, we are, um, we're going to look at Jesus' baptism, but I, I have this, this, this slide up, or the, we have a slide for this, but I also wanted to bring this if you want to come up. Uh, this was, uh, this is just gives an outline of Matthew's gospel uh, according to the Bible Project, which if, I don't know if you know the Bible Project, but they're, they're really great. They make um, scripture very accessible. They help you understand the context, the occasion, the, um, the time and place that it all went down. How is this in relation to Jesus? How is it in relation to the greater story of scripture, the meta narrative? And um, one thing about Matthew that I just want to say from the outset is, Matthew has his gospel. He, he's telling the, the story of Jesus in light of the story of Israel and how Jesus is the, is the coming king of Israel that is a king for all nations. That the story of Israel is culminating in the story of the Messiah. And that, that's what Matthew is making clear, that this Jesus is this new king that's come in the line of David. But not only is he from David, but we read in Genesis 1 at the end of November how it's, he's also from the line of Abraham. So Abraham was always meant to bless all nations. We also know that this Jesus is called Emmanuel. We did that in December. That is God with us. That Matthew's making clear that this Jesus is not only human, but he is God. And, and what we don't know as much is not only is Jesus the Messiah, not only is Jesus Emmanuel, but Jesus is a new Moses. And Matthew makes this really clear that he's the new teacher. He's, he's the ultimate priest. He's a new humanity. Uh, and, and he does that by, one, when you look at Moses' life, and that's in the left corner, the same way that Moses came out of Egypt, Jesus actually came out of Egypt as a refugee. The same way that Jesus crossed the Red Sea. Today we're going to read about Jesus being baptized in the Jordan. The same way that um, Je the Israelites, who was led by Moses, were in the desert for 40 years, Jesus is going to be in the wilderness for 40 days. Moses 
received the law from a mountain. Jesus gives the fulfillment of the law on a mountain. It's beautiful. And then even there's five major discourses throughout Matthew that split up his, his, his arc, which replicate the five books of the Torah, the Genesis, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So it's pretty incredible when you look at the structure from that standpoint. And I know a slide is hard to see, but if you want to come by afterwards and kind of like look at this, I'll bring it with me the next couple weeks. It's pretty fun because we are going to be spending time in Matthew. And so where are we in Matthew? We are in Matthew 3. I included our Advent series because we actually did go through Matthew 1 and 2. So, um, and it's good actually to have Missy, she read Luke 2, where Jesus essentially was growing up. Because there's not a lot about Jesus after his birth account and prior to his ministry, other than that fact that he was 12 years old and he stuck around his father's house. What we do know is that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, that Jesus in his humanity grew until this pivotal moment that we find ourselves in, where he comes to the full realization of his vocation. And we're going to read that now in Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. That's Isaiah 40, verse 3. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and had a leather belt around his waist. His food were locust, was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children from Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. His window of fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to return to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now, for it is proper to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water and at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. So as we think of resolutions and our desires to see change, we ask that question, how do we step into baptismal change? The first point today, it starts at the end of the passage, is that we have to anchor ourselves in our primal identity as God's beloved. You and I need to anchor ourselves in our primal identity. I love that term, primal identity. It's a Henry Nouwen term. He's a Dutch Catholic priest. As God's beloved. And as you come to church, you probably hear so many talks about identity. It's like one of the things you hear a lot. A lot. 
Well, you need to keep hearing it. Because we know it, but to experience it is two different things. Before you can take any action, you have to know who you are and whose you are. You have to know your identity. You have to be anchored in and reminding yourself of it time and time again. Before you can have any kingdom responsibility, you need to understand your relationship with the king. We need to understand our relationship with the king. When it comes to salvation and life with God, we have to first know our identity, that we are God's children, who God loves, and with us we're well pleased. We have, that's a starting point. My kids were asking this week, it's like, we went through this idea of like, what is it like to not be good enough, but be, to be made in the image of God? That is a, that's a tough question. How do you explain that we fall short in our sins, that we can't be good enough, that like our good works is com- compared to us being on earth and God is a son and we're trying to jump to the sun, but we can only jump this high, right? Like that's, that's the analogy that you hear all the time. You, some other people can jump a little higher, but none of us are getting close to jumping to the sun. That's how holy and pure our God is. But at the same time, substantively, we are made precious in the image of God. How do you explain that to kids? I think in the same way we explain it to one another, that God loves us and he wants all his wayward children to come home. That's the best way that I, I can, that, I mean, Jesus used that analogy. I'm not going to use that analogy anything better. Uh, that's it. In fact, I was um, spending a lot of time a few weeks ago in thir- Jeremiah 31.20, where it says, Is not Ephraim my dear son, the child in whom I delight? Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. This is God speaking. This is Jeremiah speaking on behalf of God. Ephraim is another word for Israel. Uh, the child in whom I delight. Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. And, and God also says, therefore my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion and mercy for him, declares, declares the Lord. So what is, what is it talking about when God speaks against his child Ephraim? Well, I'll give you just, it's all chapters 1 through 29. It's like every one of those chapters, you, you, you find out what it means for God to speak against Israel. Recalling it, uh, God via the prophet is recounting the horrid sin of Israel, 1 verse 16, how they forsaken God, 2 verse 13, how they polluted the land with its vile whoredom, 3 verse 2, wicked thoughts, 4 verse 4, stubborn and rebellious thoughts, 5 verse 23. That's just the first five chapters. That's just the first five chapters, and it goes on and on again about this rebellion and how Israel, Ephraim, has made themselves enemies of God. But then it crescendos in the statement, though I often speak against him, I still remember him. My heart yearns for him. I have great compassion and mercy for them. It's, it's, it's like God not only loves his enemies, but he wants to snuggle with his enemies. That's what's to get an idea of your primal identity. That how far you've gone, how sinful we are, God still yearns for you because you're his child, whether you know that or not. It's hard to believe that. It is really hard for us to believe that whether we're perfectionists or whether we're partiers or somewhere in between. That is a hard truth, given the messages we heard from the church but, or messages we've heard from people, but that's, that's the anchor. That, that's our identity. Is God yearns for us. Wherever we're at, God is hungering for us, holding on to us. And on the Christmas break, I did go to church. I didn't think I would, but I was like, oh, I'll go to church. I went up north, and I have uh, my wife's cousin's uh, husband, I don't know that relation, he's, he's Romanian, he's a great guy, 
Uh, he preached both times at their local church, and he brings a lot of challenge, a lot of challenge. I don't know if that has to do with his ethnic heritage, what it's like to grow up in Eastern Europe, but I know that he finds himself as one bringing correction to the church by and large that celebrates cheap grace. Has anybody heard the term of cheap grace? This idea that you're, you're loved and kind of you don't have to do anything about it. You're just so loved and accepted. And uh, therefore, don't worry about subsequent correction. In fact, because you're accepted, we're going to affirm everything in your life, which that is cheap grace. That's not real grace. Real grace empowers. It changes. And he, he brings that corrective. He brings a lot of corrective. And cheap grace has led to a lot of theological loopholes, prosperity gospels, affirming everything underneath the sun, under the, under the guise of, of God's acceptance. It's, it it's, believes all people go to heaven, which denies people their choice. And it also kind of just affirms a lazy faith, which is completely unbiblical. And so my, my, my cousin-in-law, however you want to say that, he, he wants to bring correction. He wants to bring correction. And I'm all for that. I, I do believe we need to highlight humanity's failure. And the cross is the way, the truth, and the life. And on our ongoing need for God. And uh, we need God to sustain us and, and to carry us. The fact that we cannot do it on our own. We do need to. But that message needs to begin with God's love. It needs to begin with this beauty that God, God loves us so much that he doesn't want to leave us in the misery of our sin. He yearns for us. He doesn't want our behaviors, our pornography, our lust, our skimming off the top, the way that we ignore those we love the most. He, does, he doesn't want us to live in that misery. The way that we excommunicate others, the way that we've demonized others, that only causes misery. The most misery is for us. So he's not going to leave us there. This is why Paul, in one of his most convicting letters, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15, it says it's Christ's love that compels us. It's, it's what informs everything that we're doing. It's God's love that informs what we're doing. Because we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all. And those who should live no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them but for him who died for them and was raised again. I think what I'm just trying to say in all this is a lot of times we feel like God's love is available when we're the victim. But when you read Jeremiah 31 and 2 Corinthians 5, when you look at the life of Jesus and those he hung out with, God's most intense love flows to those who are able to admit that they can't do it on their own. God's most intense love flows to us and our sin. We just need to take hold of that love and step into truth. Second point. I guess here I want to ask you a question. Do you believe that God loves you this way at your worst? Not only unconditionably, but almost uncontrollably. Do you believe that? Because you've heard the identity sermon like a zillion times, but you, we still struggle with that. You, I, I do, you know. I struggle with that. Oh, I didn't really study enough of this message, God. I'm sorry. What are you going to do? I failed you. It's like, pfft. dude loves me. And he's God, so I need to revere him. But even that, he still loves me. He still loves you. I get to revere him. How do we step into real baptismal change? We anchor ourselves in our primal identity. And then this is really important. As a result of that, 
we actually regain the practice of confession and forgiveness. We as a church, we as uh, the Protestant evangelical church, we need to regain this practice of confession and forgiveness. What does that look like? It's me telling one of you, I fall short. And that you telling each other, you fall short. It's like when your life is, if there's an area in your life where you feel like, man, I need, to, I, I need to tell somebody, but I'm afraid to tell somebody, that's where we actually tell somebody. John the Baptist was out there allowing people to confess their sins, and, they were ba- and he was baptizing them. And this, this baptism was a baptism of preparation. In fact, that's why it says, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Um, that's Isaiah 40, and, and that's a common practice, that when a king was coming into town, that in your little town, you would prepare the roads. You would, you would fill all the holes in the road, and you would remove any rocks out of the way. Even if, the, even if they can get around it, they would just be like, no, we got to make this road as clear and as, as, as um, flat as possible. And so what that means is, like, we need, we need to remove the rocks of sin out of our life and, and the empty potholes will, where we know there's areas of life where we can be participating in God's mission, but we're not. We need to fill those in, and we need to get the rocks out of the way um, as a response to the king being in our lives. So what's the difference in the baptisms? John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, Matthew 3.11. But after me comes the one who's more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. Again, John's was one of preparation. Jesus was one of the Holy Spirit, where the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes on the believer, convicts the believer. Actually, let me, let me rewind that. The Holy Spirit overflows his love into your life, Romans 5.5. 5. He pours his love into you. And then the Holy Spirit convicts you of lives, areas of your life that lives outside that love. And the Holy Spirit then guides you and comforts and counsels you into the life that God has for you, a life that is really good for you and really good for others. That's the process, and that's what's happening in this amazing moment in history where the baptism of you confessing your sins in the water uh, translates now into a baptism of you confessing the Lord who has been active in your life. Jesus was baptized to to show that he identifies with humanity. In that moment, the Spirit comes down. There's a mystery in it, but he's realizing the fullness of his vocation, that his life has led to this point where now he's fulfilled the Old Testament covenant, and he's brought his righteousness is now becoming our own righteousness through the Holy Spirit. So when we go out in the water, we're not confessing our sins. We've already confessed our need for God. We're making a public confession that Jesus is our Lord. And that we're committing ourselves to Jesus. But what easily gets lost is that we lose the art of confession of our sins. Confession of sins is not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing process. Even the work of being convicted about sin is amazing because that's God's work in your life. When you're like, oh, this is not right in my life, or this is not right about society, that's God's work in your life. And we need to continue to cultivate that work by just verbalizing to God and, yes, to one another our, our failings. 
not only our failings, but society's failings, the world's failings, and to partner in what God may have want, want for you and through you. But we say, I don't want anybody to know my issues. And I get it. It's hard. It's hard confessing to others. But if we don't do it, we likely stay stuck in our issues. So how do we practice? Where do we start? I think a great place to start is to think about your New Year's resolution. You shared about your New Year's resolution, right? Before we get into this me changing me mode, what prompted that New Year's resolution? Like what was happening, what's happening in your life where you feel like, yeah, I need, this is an area I need to change. And rather than try to come with the quick fix, I need to stop watching TV at night or I need to start working out more or whatever have you. Like what's going on? Take time to like pray and consider like, hey, Lord, what are you trying to tell me about my life? Is there, is there something missing? Is there a hole that needs to be filled or is there a rock of sin maybe in my life? Like, I had all these ideas of how I need to pray and pray and pray more for the year, and then I just realized, no, I actually have, a, I have an issue of pride, of, of control. And that's actually my own Messiah complex. I'm, I'm trying to make it all happen. God, I need, I need you to, and I'm actually invited to, to play more, which is like, I never would have thought of playing more as like a New Year's resolution. But what, as you consider your resolution, as you're thinking about it in your mind right now, What's happening underneath? What prompt, what's prompting that? So, again, I felt like a good, I don't know if that was a vague time, but, like, my heart in that is, like, what area, areas of your life do you sense are falling short that it necessitates uh, a New Year's resolution? And if you don't have any, Andy, what, what area of your life is falling short of God's dignity that he's given you, your primal identity? I don't get that question. It's vague. Then, then confession can be as simply as what is an ongoing or recent sin in your life? And even if it's small, it's okay to confess that. Some people used to give me a hard time about like, uh, I used to process when we were at Hope Church years ago, some of my anger with my kids being little, you know, and like, um, sure, shame is a real thing, and shame has a lot to do with pride because we think we're the issue, there's a lot of psychology below that, but like the truth is, I think it's just healthy to bring up areas that you fall short. You don't want to overemphasize it as if, again, all of life is, is set upon my sin or my lack of sin, but it is good to talk about. It's like, yeah, my, me and my spouse are, are in a fight right now, and I said this, and I wish I didn't say this, you know, like, and just, or even when you're with somebody, like when you have some lazy comment, you're like, yeah, you know, you're blah, blah, blah. It's like, oh, you know what? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that. I like you, Ben. You know, you're a pretty good guy. Sorry about that, you know. I, I just wish we were a church where you could just be like, we'd be free to talk about where we fall short. And even process where we fall short. I had, um, I had, there was a great group of guys, and I was like, hey, I just want to make, is this an issue in my life? Even just be like, hey, is this a sin? Like this issue, like I, uh, in my life, is it a sin or is it something I should pay attention to or go to a group? And it was helpful. The guy's like, nah, that's not a sin. Just, just keep, keep talking about that. It was more of a temptation. He's like, but you probably just need to keep talking about it. Even just sharing our temptations is like super helpful. Super helpful. And I want to be in an accepting enough community where we do that, where we accept each other, let each other share, but we don't leave each other there. We don't leave each other there. So how do we step into real baptismal change? We, we anchor ourselves in our primal identity we begin to talk openly 
about how we fall short, knowing that God forgives us. And then, this is really important, it's hard to put this in words because there's a mystery to it, but we walk as one who's been raised from the dead. We walk as someone who is a new creation. When we do that, I, I was going to, when we believe that we're not obligated to our sin or obligated to the ways of the world, that's when we actually start experiencing victory of that. Like this, this behavior doesn't define who I am. This sin doesn't define me. I don't, I don't have to do this. this. I'm not submitted to this. God has raised me from the dead in Christ. And therefore, I, you just need to say out loud, it's like, oh yeah, I, this is not me. This is not me. I do not have to do this. This is why John prophesies the coming of Jesus. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who's more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. And John was like known as the greatest of the Old Testament in a sense, the greatest prophet, not of the Old Testament, but of all of, all of these, John was the greatest prophet. He's not even worthy of Jesus. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His window of fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chafe with unquenchable fire. In the same way we understand God's uncontrollable love, in the same way his uh, infinite holiness, the same way you can, you can see just the portrait of, it, of, of John the Baptist, like this humility that he has, but also the strength that he has to call people out to a better way of living. He calls out the Pharisees. He's like, dude, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Live in light of who God is, not who you think you are, but who God is and therefore who God says you are. That's why we talk about this wheat and this chaff. The wheat is, is the fruit that lives uh, the Holy Spirit. The chaff is the life that's based on self-centrism, that tries to do it on our own, denies the God's work in our lives, maybe thinks they fall short but believes they're the one who can get themselves out when it's the Holy Spirit that convicts us, guides us, counts us, helps us, and raises us literally from the dead. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That's why Paul says in Romans when he talks about baptism, or don't you know that all of us were baptized in Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? And we therefore were buried with him and through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. This is why 2 Corinthians 5, that one where it says Christ's love compels us, it says that we are new creations in Christ. Baptism signifies life from the Spirit as well as life in the Spirit. So then, as a response, we keep in step with the Spirit where God convicts us and God also motivates us. It begins with saying, yeah, I'm God's kid. That's who I am. Oh, this is an area of my life where I fall short. And I'm trusting as a response to the conviction as well as the help of the Spirit that I can live in accordance of how the King, the Messiah, would have me live. So one way that we're going to increase our awareness of God's work in our life is each Sunday we're going to talk about different practices uh, to keep in step with the Spirit. Again, the practices aren't the way to make good with God. They just make us attentive to what God is doing. They're just helpful ways. And so as we look, there's a, Andrew made a slide last minute of some of the practices that we've written up. Uh, Joyce and I looked at this this year, and uh, there's a slide. It, it, there's a couple things we practice in each week. Today was confession. Uh, a day without, that's gossip, not gospel. That's my bad. Every day is a gospel. <laughs> we're going to party hard in Mardi Gras. No, uh, we're going to play. There's actually play, prayer, 
Fasting, we're going to experiment with some fasting this year. I don't like fasting. What is that resistance about? Uh, praying for the success of people that we compete with. Some silence, simplifying the accumulation, hospitality, secret service. That's like uh, get random gifts of kindness. We'll be taking a break from media fasting. Uh, taking a break from media, rather. And then, obviously, keeping the Sabbath is very important. These are some practices that we're going to highlight each week, and we're going to corporately do it together. Corporate just means collectively. It's, and so this week, our practice is confession, that you're going to practice confession with someone this week, an area of your life, with a believer, not just God, but God through a believer. That's, that's, that's the goal this week. Um, and yeah, one thing that you know about John the Baptist ministry Jesus' ministry, when you look at the ministry of some of the, the, the spiritual giants in the Bible and outside of the Bible, it's a time of, before they, before they step out into their full ministry, there's a, there's a space just to prepare yourselves, to be prepared for the Lord. And it just seems right in this beginning of this year that we would, we would prepare ourselves by practicing these practices together that help cultivate God's work in our life so that we can take big steps together as a church so as you look at this list, is there anything that you're resistant to? I'm not telling you which day we're doing them because I don't want you to skip. But is there anything there? This is not for the year. It's just for a week. Anything there, it's like, oh, I don't want to do that. Because that's even God talking to you. God's having a conversation with you about that. Through these practices, I believe we're going to experience the mercy of God. Again, mercy is defined as the compassionate disposition to forgive someone and or offer aid or assistance to help someone in need. And so I'm very much looking forward to this year and what God's going to do in and through our sturdy, if small, community. So with that, uh, let's pray. So, Lord, we come before you as people who are in need, people who don't have it all together. But even before we come to you like that, we come to you as your children, which even means in our sin, somehow we can still come to you in dancing as a child comes to a parent and to be embraced by that God who loves us undeniably, uncontrollably, yeah, unconditionally. And from that place, from that embrace, God, we know that you rise us up. You continue to rise us up so that we can step into life. We can step out of misery, out of sin, out of our failure to love God and others and step into life. And one conviction that you've given me this year, Lord, is that we all, wherever we're at, we, we want to open the door for anybody to receive this life. That this, this invitation to life is never a locked door. It's not even a closed door. It's an open door. So if there's anybody here that has not said yes to the God who says yes to them, would they know that you, Lord, love them? That you want to establish their steps? That you want to hold them? You want to carry them? You want to raise them up? And all they need to do is take hold of that conviction, Holy Spirit, of saying, yeah, I fall short, but more importantly, I want to confess you, God, as the one who, who, who I long for, 
the God who's living and active. I want to confess my need for you, God, so that you can do a work, a good work that you will carry to completion. You're initiating a work in each person's life here, and you will sustain it. That's who you are. These are your promises that you never leave or forsake us, God. And that work is demonstrated so clearly through the cross of Jesus Christ. That it's the cross that you, Jesus, that started in this moment where you said, let it be so. Let it be so. You also said to the cross, let it be so, so that those who believe in you, Lord and Savior, will come to know you through this gift of life that you've given us, through the gift of the spirit that you gave up on the cross. So that you, God, would, would help us carry our cross so that we can live with you and for the sake of others. If there's anybody here who has not said yes to Jesus, I want you to know that you have a moment right now to say yes. That this is your time. And the beauty of your time is that it's always available in God's economy, but you are going to miss out if you don't say yes right away. The invitation is always there. It is. But, but don't miss out. Don't miss out on the God who's here and that loves you. In the same way, church, we don't want to miss out on the God who continues, who wants to continue to love us and serve us and sustain us so that we can live for greater purposes. Amen? So if you want to confess Christ as Lord, take this time right now and say, God, you are Lord. He's listening. He's available. His forgiveness is ready. His love is always there. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the next steps for this conversation is to continue confession this week. And if you're somebody who's confessed Christ as Lord, confess that to somebody this week. Let us know. And then the book studies are going to be great. Sign up for them. It's going to be a wonderful year. In fact, we're only going to double down on those practices that I showed you in the book study. And then lastly, uh, support the work of the movement. Let's uh, worship God with one more song.